Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for our reflection today is our gospel reading, especially, though we won't get to it till the end, verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Please be seated. The father has been trying to figure out how to tell his sons the news for a while now. It was just a few days past that he received his diagnosis from the doctors, but it seems like an eternity ago. Brain cancer. Three to six months to live. What can he possibly say to his kids? He has no idea, but... He figures that he better say something soon, so he gets them all together and fights back the tears and lets it all out, every excruciating detail. The news is met with disbelief, sadness, fear, but mostly confusion. They all gather around and share some tears as they hold each other tight. After all of this is over, two of his sons take their father aside privately, put their arms around him, look deeply into his eyes, still red from weeping, and one of the brothers says in a quiet but confident voice, Dad, we need you to do something for us. Of course, my sons, what is it? Can we have the house? I mean, you feel bad laughing about that. At least I hope you do. It's ridiculous, isn't it? What a selfish request at at such a time. It almost sounds made up. Well, thankfully, it is. (laughs) But in our gospel reading for today, something very much like this takes place. Perhaps uh, it struck you for the first time as it it kind of did me this time around. Uh, Perhaps you didn't really notice it, but let's take a look again. Um, If you'd like to follow along, I'd invite you to grab a Bible and uh, turn to Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32. We're going to be looking at this text together today. Now, out of all of the disciples, Peter is usually the one that gets the bad rap. He's the impulsive one. He's the one that, that asks the wrong questions, that gives the wrong answers. But Peter is part of Jesus' inner circle of followers along with James and John. And it is these other two, these two brothers, that Jesus nicknames the sons of thunder. Probably because of their stormy temperament. James and John were the ones who offered to call down fire on the Samaritan village after it didn't welcome them. James and John are the ones that, that tried to stop people from casting out demons because they weren't part of their group. And so in today's passage, the sons of thunder show themselves to be aptly nicknamed by Jesus. Jesus has just finished telling the disciples of his impending arrest, torture, and death in every excruciating detail. The Son of Man will be delivered over. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. After three days, he will rise. The news is met with disbelief, sadness, fear, but as far as we can tell, mostly with confusion. Now, how did the sons of thunder handle all of this? 
Well, as soon as they get Jesus off by himself, they make a request. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now this is ridiculous, right? What an unbelievably selfish request under the circumstances. It almost sounds made up. But it's not. And so we cannot help but agree with Jesus when he says that James and John didn't know what they were asking. First of all, this question wasn't even close to appropriate. Certainly not then and probably not ever. Coming right on the heels of Jesus' prediction of his passion, James and John's request shows no concern nor consideration for the gravity and the magnitude of what Jesus has just told them. Their request exhibits selfishness and ambition, showing that they are only concerned with themselves and their own prestige or power. But as it turns out, Jesus says, they came to the wrong guy. To sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, Jesus says, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Secondly, James and John didn't know what they were asking because they didn't understand the entire point of Jesus' ministry. Jesus did not come to be an earthly ruler. He wasn't seeking an earthly kingdom. His mission was not to overthrow the Romans, but to give himself over to them, to be crucified by them. James and John asked to share in Christ's glory, but they don't understand what that means. Because Jesus will soon be glorified, but not by being placed on an earthly throne with a crown of jewels, but by being nailed to a wooden cross with a crown of thorns. Jesus will not have his friends seated beside him in power, but he will have two criminals crucified beside him in agony, one on his right and one on his left, incidentally. The sons of thunder didn't know what they were asking. Do we? Are the requests that we make of Jesus ever inappropriate? Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus doesn't want to hear our requests, not at all. In fact, I love how he responds to James and John when they ask him to do whatever they want. If it were me, I think I would respond with something like, Are you kidding me? Did you hear a single thing I just said to you? But Jesus graciously listens to their ungracious requests, saying to them as he says to us, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus doesn't begrudge us our requests, but he also doesn't want us to be so turned in on ourselves that our requests take no account of others or of him or of his kingdom. One commentary I was reading on this passage says, If it had not been recorded, we could hardly have believed that after all of this, James and John could have come with their ambitious and selfish request. We know only too well, however, what we are like ourselves. And so we can understand. Like James and John, I I think we don't know what we are asking of the Lord when we ask only out of ambition or selfishness, only because it will mean our own personal satisfaction or advancement. I think we don't know what we're asking of the Lord if we ask it as if somehow God owes us something. There's this great scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which I just finished reading through again, and One of the characters is visiting heaven and he meets a man who's already living there. And he says to this man, 
you know, I deserve to be here. I only want my rights. And the man responds, oh no, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. And so when we pray, we should do so with all of the confidence of James and John, but with none of their self-seeking. And we should understand that God knows what he's doing, and he knows what's best for us. He's not some magical vending machine there to give us whatever we want. He's our Father, and he will give us whatever we need. So let us draw near to him with repentant hearts and ask good things of him for ourselves and for others, as dear children ask their dear father. The sons of thunder didn't know what they were asking, and and oftentimes neither do you or I. But James and John's problem didn't end there. Jesus answers their question with a question, asking them, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Their answer shows that not only did they not know what they were asking, they also didn't know what Jesus was asking. Despite Jesus' detailed prediction of his own torment and execution, despite this question of his, which uses Old Testament language to make it very clear that he will undergo great suffering, the sons of thunder didn't know what Jesus was asking. They still didn't realize that co-ruling with Jesus entails suffering and death. Our son Ethan, a a month or two ago, uh, learned the word, yeah. And for the past month or so, whenever we ask him a question, uh, this is how he responds. Take a look. Ethan, do you think we should shave your head? Do you want to eat nothing but vegetables the rest of your life? Yeah. Do you want your mom to change all your poopy diapers? Yeah. Okay. This is essentially how James and John answer Jesus' question. Yeah. Yeah. They don't understand what he's asking, but for them it doesn't really matter because they they figure they're willing to do whatever it takes to find themselves enthroned by Jesus' side. If they had understood everything at the time, though, their answer might have been quite different. Of course, Jesus ends up telling them that they will, in fact, suffer for him. And after Jesus is raised from the dead, James and John do learn what Jesus was asking, and they gladly embrace the suffering that comes with discipleship. James will end up being the first apostle to be martyred, put to death by Herod, as narrated in Acts 12. John, in his final days, will be exiled to a lonely island. The sons of thunder both drink the cup that Jesus drank, and in the end, they both know and truly accept what Jesus is asking. Do we? Do we truly understand what it means to follow Jesus, or are we just in it for the good parts? Do we follow Jesus because it makes us look good to other people, because it somehow makes us look better or smarter than others? Do we ever find ourselves just wanting the benefits of being a Christian without any of the struggles or the pain? If so, we don't know what Jesus is asking because Jesus wants all of us, the good and the bad, 
And so sometimes his complete and total lordship over us is going to mean that we will suffer. You know, in today's culture, being a good, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian can quickly get you labeled as a bad person. Someone who is bigoted, ignorant, intolerant. Are we willing to undergo this kind of treatment for the sake of Christ and not waver in our commitment to him and to his word? Plenty of Christians have answered that question with, well, no. Plenty of Christian church bodies have answered that question with, well, no. Are we willing to stand and to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being violently persecuted for the sake of the gospel? Are we willing ourselves to suffer for Christ, to suffer with Christ? As we've said, James and John will learn what this means, and so will the other ten disciples. But for now, the other ten have somehow learned of the brothers' request of Jesus, and they are furious. Not so much because they think it inappropriate to ask such a thing at such a time, but because they hadn't thought to ask first themselves. And so Jesus takes them all aside, gives them a lesson in what it means to be a disciple. In the world, he says, authority and power are important things. And and those who have those things tyrannize and dominate those who don't. But it shall not be so among you, he says. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This was a radical teaching. It completely upended the social structure, the civilized thinking of that day, and I would say of our day as well. To say that greatness consisted of servitude, of of slavery, was incredible. But Jesus says that if power and prestige are what we seek, we will only come up empty. We will find that we have nothing to do with him. Being Jesus' disciple means willingly giving up our freedom willingly surrendering our supposed rights for the sake of others. Martin Luther has famously written, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Christians, though entirely free in Christ, willingly choose to become slaves of all. As followers of Jesus, we lay ourselves down for others. We offer ourselves up to others, looking to their needs before our own, considering them to be more important than we are. And we do it so that Jesus may be seen in us. This is what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. This way of living is hard, but Jesus demonstrated it for us in everything that he did. He spent long days without rest healing all who would come to him. He walked the dusty streets day after day, tirelessly seeking out those who were in need of his compassion. And on the very night before he was crucified, he got down on his hands and his knees, and he washed the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples, just like a slave. The greatest act of service Jesus ever did is described by him 
in verse 45, which is the summary verse, the thesis statement of Mark's entire gospel. Let's read this together. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we see that Jesus is both our example and our redemption. By his life, and especially by his death, he shows us what it means to be a slave of all. But even more, by his life, and especially by his death, he has redeemed us and set us free. By his blood, our suffering servant has paid the steep ransom required to bring us back to life. By his self-sacrifice as our great high priest, he has delivered us from our selfish request. He has saved us from our selfish living. As he had predicted beforehand, he was delivered over, condemned to death, mocked, spit upon, flogged, and killed for you. And as he had predicted beforehand, after three days he rose from the dead for you. He lives now as your servant and as your Lord. Because of that, you live now as his servant and as his disciple. So I hope that your response to God's invitation to live as a slave of all might be the same as my son's response to everything. An enthusiastic, yeah, yeah. Not because you don't know what Jesus is asking, but because you know exactly what he is asking. And you know exactly what he has done for you. May his mercy and his humility be yours as you live for him. In Jesus' name, amen.